between war. We haven't fired. And peace. According to our data banks, we have. There exists the undiscovered country. The final mission. Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Coming soon on video cassette. Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith, and joining me on the bridge... This is Tyler Orton applying for membership to the Homo Sapiens Only Club. (laughs) And we're here this week to talk about Undiscovered Country at 30, How to End an Era. So yeah, we did our review a couple years back. We'll post a link in the show notes, of course. We also have two special guests coming up today. One Patrick Johnston, as well as one Scott Hardy, fan favorites. But uh, before we get into it, overall, Cam, who would have thunk it? Uh, we, we end the franchise with the original crew with a political thriller, which is not necessarily something you'd get made nowadays in this era of uh, $250 million tentpole movies. And I think we want to get into a discussion about how you really do end an era, whether we're looking at the original series, uh, the various ways TNG had to do that. And I don't know, there, there's some question marks hanging around other parts of the franchise. And I think there's some great examples of how they're really telegraphing that, yes, this is the end of the road for the original series crew. But before we get into that, just what is your your overall takeaway at the Undiscovered Country after it's turned 30 at this point, as of this week? This was one that made an impact on me very quickly when I was young, where my friend showed it at his birthday party where they projected it on the wall. And um, it was really exciting. I think it was maybe the second Star Trek movie I saw, I think ever. I think Wrath of Khan followed by this one, the both the Nicholas Meyer films, actually. And um, when I've revisited over the years, it continues to work for me, which it really shouldn't. It's the sixth entry. You have the fifth, which is, uh, <laughs> well, it's spotty. and so. <laughs> not Scotty, Spotty. And so in theory, you would think by the time you roll around to a sixth, it might have just been like a studio just phoning in one more before they reboot the whole thing with TNG. But it really feels like it's delivering something that's thematically interesting. In a lot of ways, it's reckoning with the character of Kirk as set up through the original series. It has a lot of baton passes. And it feels... I don't know that I'd ever noticed it as much before, but it really does feel like it's segging into TNG in a way that had not really connected with me in the past. I always looked at Generations as the very clear baton pass, but I honestly think this movie might be a better one. Uh, And how do you mean that with regards to this is the one that's segueing into TNG perhaps better than Generations? I think it's about, so much of it is about the end of this particular era. You have the crew constantly commenting on, you know, this is the end, all things end, and what have you. And um, the idea that this crew, you know, the ship is going to be mothballed, they reference a new crew is going to be coming on. Obviously, it's not Picard taking over that specific ship. But the idea that the next generation is coming, and the movie ends with the music. Obviously, it's from Star Trek V and the, the motion picture as well. But the fact that it is now, at this point in time, four years into TNG, known as the TNG theme, it feels like very much 
you know, Kirk taking his, you know, second start of the right straight on till morning before they dock to be, you know, decommissioned. And the music is almost queuing you up for we are moving into the TNG era. Well, you know, you may have misread the entire point of this movie because obviously they're keen up for uh, John Harriman as played by one Alan Ruck to be the new crew <laughs> taking over uh, the Enterprise names cam. So uh, and which, you know, what uh, that is in generations. So there you go right there. Um, Kim, I, I remark on this movie as just capturing the zeitgeist of this uh, post-Soviet era in which the Americans really did not know what to do. They did not know what was going to come next, you know, just from a political perspective in which you have uh, this very much two opposing powers, superpowers, and that just kind of evaporates almost overnight. Um, watching this as a young kid who received a used copy of VHS from a family member way back in the day and watched this again and again, there's so much I just really did not pick up on, really was not clued into uh, w with all the political elements. You know, when Spock says, you know, only Nixon could go, go to China, I had no idea <laughs> what that meant at the time or how it was even relevant uh, to what was going on here. Um, <laughs> Isn't that the joke that all the kids loved back in the day? <laughs> I love me my Nixon jokes back then, Cameron. But... Um, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I kept running up, <laughs> running around the house doing Nixon impressions after watching this movie. So I, I pick up uh, so much more on kind of not only kind of the the, the very on the nose we are mothballing the, this crew and this ship as we pass the baton on to another franchise, but it really is capturing the, this uh, very weird sort of zeitgeisty moment in global history. In a, in a way, that, there's no way a movie like this could ever be made. I, I don't even know what the comparison point would be for, you know, like you said, there's the character stuff that we're talking about, about the, the crew having to move on. But there's also just the very on-the-nose political stuff going on in the uh, late 80s, early 1990s that they're commenting on the time. And it, it's a little bit of, about people just kind of feeling lost and not knowing what's going to come next. That's the undiscovered country right there, the, the future. That amazing moment where, you know, well, uh, one of the great moments where, you know, Kirk and uh, and McCoy are on their bunks and Kirk's just remarking about how, you know, like, aren't we kind of afraid of what comes next? You know, isn't everybody? And I, I think this is just kind of a, a fascinating film. I don't know how it got made back then. Uh, I think we dug d deep into the details uh, a couple years ago on our podcast about uh, all of the behind the scenes stuff, but... The fact is that there will never be like kind of a Star Trek-esque or kind of a sci-fi-esque sort of movie like this unless, you know, Vin Diesel and Riddick wants to talk about uh, global politics uh, in uh, the 2020s. Well, I don't know. What about the 9-11 metaphors of um, Star Trek Into Darkness? <laughs> yeah, um, the less said about the 9-11 uh, deniers uh the, the better I, I would say or truthers <laughs> not the deniers the truthers i i should say the better but um cam when we talk about ending an era i i, I mean this is literally <laughs> the crew signing off i mean that literally they, they are putting their signatures on the end credits and it's fading to black as the uh crew moves on like it, it's kind of a fascinating like how willing I guess the studio was to say, like, yeah, you guys are toast. We have a successful new television series on right now. Uh, this would have been, like, uh, premiering um, after the Best of Both Worlds had really kind of made a name for TNG. 
And I think by then Paramount was like, okay, well, these are the new kids on the block. They can be viable uh, out the door with you. And I, I, you know, Shatner, you get the sense he is kind of a, a sensitive soul. And I, I only wonder what he was thinking at the time when uh, they're kind of getting the boots uh, like this. Well, it really does feel like a grace note to have them all, you know, their signatures at the end. It is like a farewell. But you could just tell that, like, when it, you know, obviously generations rolled around, uh, Shatner could not let it be. He kind of has a little bit of the um, Sylvester Stallone Rocky syndrome, where they kept writing these, like, perfect poetic endings to Rocky. But then Stallone would be like, uh, I I'm not quite comfortable retiring yet. I'm not quite comfortable handing this franchise to someone else. I still need to get my uh, get my foot in the door here, which is how you end up with, you know, him in generations. Whereas... I think if we had ended Kirk's journey here, it would have been more satisfying than kind of where we sit now, especially at the time, maybe Shatner was convinced. He's like, okay, this is going to be a fantastic ending to Kirk. We're going to have the true literal baton passing as opposed to something a little more symbolic here, you know, with Patrick Stewart, maybe in his mind, it would be fantastic. But I think where we sit now in 2021, looking back at this movie series, Star Trek six would have been the better grace note to go out on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the way that, Kirk was dispatched with in Generations is just it's just cringy you know it's one of the big regrets that uh, Ron Moore talks about with regards to his own uh, feature film writing career but Kim we've discussed this before is there the off chance that Shatner ever makes another appearance somehow we, we, we talked about kind of animation but is there a way to have a resurrected Captain Kirk in the flesh at any sort of point within the uh, very wide-ranging Star Trek franchise that we have in this Kurtzman era now. The only way that actually interests me, which doesn't mean they wouldn't wedge him into Discovery or something like that, I don't, who knows, but it would be maybe more interesting to me if they'd had some sort of, I don't know, some sort of like flash forward or even just like acknowledgement of the Chris Pine Kirk aging into Shatner. Like, maybe even have, like, <laughs> wow. this just popped into my head. Um, a moment. Oh, my God. This just popped into my head. Okay. You have your final Kelvinverse movie, and you have the Saving Private Ryan aging effect of Chris Pine aging into William Shatner. Yeah. All right. All right. It's, it's kind of like Michael Jackson's music video for Black or White, right? Yeah, exactly. Because the thing is, Kirk died in the prime timeline. So whichever way you're going to work a 90-year-old Shatner into... <laughs> Picard or into Discovery or something like that is going to feel awkward. Whereas, like, if you actually did an aging effect on the Kelvinverse Pike, it would work. I guess, or not Pike, well, um, Chris Pine, I should say, not Pike. Uh, yeah, Chris Pine. But, like, the only, I don't know, the only other thing I could think of would be, God, I don't know that there's, like, a good organic way to do it where it doesn't feel really tortured. I think the Kelvinverse is probably the, the, the best bet, right? That, or do you think they would go for a de-aging thing? Because that's obviously very popular now, too. I, I would love to see whatever freak show that would look like. <laughs> uh, just out of my own like morbid curiosity. But please, God, producers, don't go down that path. I, it's not going to work. I, I even look at stuff, you know, just like uh, Brent Spiner as Data, or, you know, like... Uh, 
Luke Skywalker as played by one Mark Hamill. And it's it's so weird in that you have like these professional or businesses, organizations, VFX houses doing this work for millions of millions of dollars. And you have all these like amateurs kind of touching it up and making it look 10 times better that they showcase on YouTube videos. So maybe it is possible, Cam, but... Um, I don't know. Do you remember that moment in Star Trek Beyond where, you know, we find out that uh, Prime Spock has passed on and he's giving his personal effects to Kelvinverse Spock and he takes out a photo, which is kind of the uh, publicity shot from Star Trek V The Final Frontier. And you look at how those um, actors have aged and how different they look hmm. from the uh, the Kelvinverse cast. I, I think you and I had kind of a moment where we were both like, oof. You know, like, uh, it, it, it's a it's a little jarring, but Cam, I would love to see kind of this morphine effect uh, enacted somehow, right? Who would be the most jarring morphing effect from the Kelvin verse into the original crew? <laughs> come on, it, it's Simon Pegg into Jimmy Doohan. <laughs> like, come on, like, we know the answer, right? <laughs> I want to see it happen. And I'm not just talking about the ginger hair. <laughs> yeah, I just want to see it happen because I think it would be astonishing. <laughs> I, I was just thinking about like, do you think, um, you think Kelvin versus Spock was passing around the photo and saying, "Hey, uh, Scotty, this is what you're gonna look like in about twenty years." Just an FYI, like, I'm just wondering what uh, he he was thinking about that. Yeah, I, I'd like to think so. Simon Pegg, so much fun in those movies, but he was one of the few you you really don't kind of pick up the resemblance so much as just a, a character copy. Well, you speak to like our, our Scottish friend, uh, James Chester, and we were asking him his thoughts on the accent, and he made it very clear no one in Scotland speaks the way that's, uh, that uh, Simon Pegg does in the uh, Kelvinverse. It's just, it, it's like kind of a made-up accent. And weren't we at a convention where he was explaining how he tried to bring like a, a little bit of twinges from like different sorts of regions of Scotland. Like he said, it was like a purposeful accent. I think a little, some of it was influenced by by the way his wife speaks. I, I don't know with certainty that she is Scottish, but maybe she kind of grew up there or something like that. I I, I don't know, but it was just kind of. It, it seemed as if there's more thought put into it, but it just turned into kind of like just, just one of those very truly bizarre. House of Gucci-esque accents, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty much, pretty much. <laughs> okay. Well, okay, look, I think we're on the same page here. I think they end the era of TOS quite well. You know, they're, there's literally a shot of the sun setting on the Enterprise and the Excelsior. It, it is a new dawn. Um, the uh, Starfleet and the Klingon Empire, they are in an alliance now. This is not Kirk's era. He doesn't know what to do with himself moving forward. And even the fact that his like last like raw raw moment was, you know, second star to the right and straight on till morning, that, that that's a reference to Peter Pan. Like this is a guy mm -hmm. who just doesn't quite want to grow up and now he's faced with that inevitable task at this moment and and look i th this movie is like uh, surface level like it's a great little thriller but also just kind of the, the deeper stuff that's going on underneath the layers it, it's just like a, a total hoot to you know appreciate in this in this era and why it makes such a fantastic closure to the tos era is so much of tos the show and then the films was about this clash between the Federation and the Klingons. And that was so much of what Kirk's stories were. You know, you have multiple episodes in the original and then obviously several films. And to have Kirk grappling with this in the final film 
and coming to sort of a piece and understanding as to where we're going. You know, you have great lines where they talk. I believe it's um, um, Gorkon says, you know, that it's a brave new world and our generation is going to have the hardest time living in it. And just the idea that like Kirk is reckoning with the stories we've watched him go on as well as, you know, they point out in this, you know, like you've broken, um, you know, Starfleet regulation in the past. And just the idea that this is a character who, you know, coming to the end of his career in this film, we're actually acknowledging some of the flaws of that character and allowing him to kind of speak for himself and find a place of peace moving forward is... I just think a, a really strong way to end it. It's not slam bang. Like, it's not the way they would end a lot of franchises. Now, you know, you look at, like, the end of Endgame, right? With, like, the big Iron Man, Captain America kind of stuff, which is really, really showy and intended to have the audience, you know, fist pumping um, as they watch the movie or alternately crying while they're watching the movie. But, like, Kirk's moments are just much more, I think, sincere. And they are moving, but they aren't, like you know, <laughs> hitting the uh, the hard notes on the piano. There's a certain amount of intentionality with what the filmmakers are doing with Kirk in this moment. And this, this of course, this is not an ensemble. This is uh, the Kirk show far and away, and then to a lesser extent. It's not like really about ending the era with Spock, because we know that Spock is going to live on for at least another hundred years after this, you know? And look, let's be honest, like uh, McCoy was always kind of like a... a, a an elevated bit player to a certain degree. You just look at um, uh, what Uhura had to do in this movie, which like her, her most extensive like uh, uh, appearance involved her looking like as if she's incompetent by not being able to translate from English to Klingon back and forth. You know, this is all about Kirk, and there's this intentionality that we have with this movie that few franchises rarely have that opportunity to to do. Where yes. Let's go out on a high note. Let's close it off and then move on from here. Um, with regards to how TNG did it in that film franchise, like I, hmm. it seemed as if they wanted to say, yeah, we are moving on. Look, Riker's on his own ship. Uh, Data's dead. Picard's getting a new XO. Troy is on the USS Titan as well. That, that, that really leaves kind of a, a skeleton crew. It's like, who's left? Like Jordy and Crusher? Worf's doing yeah. his own thing. It's it is trying to say goodbye. I think if that movie made a lot more money, I think they would have been back with a uh, another a fifth TNG film. But that never happened. And uh, maybe Star Trek Picard will end the era in a way that we would have liked better. I I don't know. I I don't have a lot of faith at this point. But um, it's just kind of to, to see how those two film franchises are, are juxtaposed. It's, it's very, very striking and, and very, very obvious the difference between what happens uh, in, in those respective uh, crews. Well, I guess in about a year, roughly, we can do a Star Trek nemesis, how not to end an era. <laughs> yep, true. Um, now, now, let's talk about the Kelvinverse, though. When we saw them last in Star Trek Beyond, it seemed as if it, it, was, it was almost the start of a new era. They had just completed their trilogy their first trilogy in my mind it didn't mm -hmm. seem as if they were saying goodbye sure the ship was destroyed but there's all these like weird moments in that you know we know that um leonard nimoy had passed away and they're kind of giving him kind of a goodbye i if i recall correctly you know was this movie not given a kind of a dedication to anton yelchin uh just mm -hmm. in the end credits as well and that's just such a, a sad thing but i remember like 
when we were having our discussions after this movie uh, ended, I mean, all our discussions were about like, where do they go from here? You've got a brand new ship. Is, you know, Chekhov going to just kind of be written out in, in a kind of a weird way? Or, or how do you address that issue? I don't think we were expecting that might be the end of an era. And who knows? Maybe it's not. Maybe the Kelvinverse crew will be back in some capacity. But it, like that's not what I expected five years ago when that film came out. I also don't expect the Kelvinverse crew to be back in like a, you know, ongoing series of a couple more movies, like, you know, a Star Trek four and five landing two or three years apart. Like, I think we could see them back in some sort of fashion. Um, but I, I feel like it could almost be like guest stars in a different Star Trek film franchise or something like that. I could see some sort of crossover kind of thing, a la, you know, what they're doing with like the upcoming Spider-Man film or something. I just don't see them just doing a straight-ahead Kelvinverse film in the future and properly ending that era. So, yeah, you're right. Like, Beyond is a weird way to go out. You know, you have the Anton Yelchin farewell, but it, it's not a real sense of even thematically this is an end point for this crew. I, I'm not saying it is probable, but what, what do you think about the potential for Paramount to kind of pull a, a, a DC sort of move in what you are... You know, you have like multiple Batman or uh, multiple Jokers all coming out uh, that this studio is delivering. Do you think that there could be, you know, whatever the movie that we get in December 2023 that uh, Paramount has uh, circled the calendar for, maybe that's not a Kelvinverse uh, flick. Maybe it's something else, but I, maybe there's a possibility that the next Kelvinverse flick comes out, you know, a year later, six months later, and, and we're following different crews concurrently or maybe it could be a launching off point for you know paramount plus having direct uh streaming uh films following different sorts of crews like i, I just like uh, we've talked about in, in depth the, the film franchise is a total mess right now um but what do you think about this possibility uh a la that uh, dc films model I don't think, in theory, it's an uh, improbable idea or impossible idea. I just wonder if it becomes so cost prohibitive for what Paramount would want to do. Like, they, I could see them rolling the dice on perhaps a Kelvinverse movie, but like, I don't know that they're going to be that committed to it because the last one cost like $180 million. And if it is a theatrical feature, and a lot of these actors are pretty costly. Um, I, ooh, it's a really tough gamble, especially the marketplace right now for expensive movies. So it's kind of like they might roll the dice once, maybe, but I think they're going to want to reboot with a cheaper crew and try to grab an audience in a new way as opposed to looking back to what was going on in 2016. Yeah, I just wonder, and uh, is it just direct-to-streaming movies that are made on the cheap using recycled sets at the uh, the Toronto studios with, you know, they, they could recycle some sets from Discovery or Strange New Worlds, that sort of stuff, in that, and you're saying, oh, I don't know, doesn't that look a little chintzy? But, I, I mean, look, we just watched Star Trek VI. It's an amazing movie. Uh, they were using all the uh, the next-gen sets right there and uh, making it look very cinematic. So, I, like, I just wonder if, like, making these on the cheap, in, instead of investing in, like, $180 million movies, maybe you're investing in $50 million movies going straight to streaming. That is what I think makes the most sense for Star Trek. Because, you know, you mentioned DC. Uh, you're always going to do well with, like, a Batman movie. You throw Batman into just about anything, you're at least going to recoup your budget, if not just make, like, a, close to a billion dollars. 
Star Trek is a much tougher sell. So, like, I think the way for Star Trek to survive in future movies, and I think Star Trek VI is a good one to look at, which was doing something quite different. It was not saying, here's your final Star Trek movie. It's a huge space war film a la Star Wars or something huge. It's, as you said, a political thriller. It's dealing with the character of Kirk and the journey he's been on over the series and the films. Whereas, like, when it comes to the expectations of films in theaters now, it's like they've got to be kind of big and glossy and expensive. I think on streaming, though, you could do these sorts of movies. Like, a Star Trek VI, to me, has a life on the small screen at a lower budget. It's going to be interesting just coming up with whatever happens next in these films. But I I, I think back to the television kind of way of ending an era. I I think uh, TNG nailed it, but... uh, they also got the opportunity to end it, or at least try to end it again in film. Out of the the crews that did not get that opportunity, Cam, you know, we, we can scrub away the uh, Turnabout Intruder or All Good Things out of the other TV series that have had to end their own eras. Who did it best and who maybe kind of uh, biffed it? Um, DS9 did it, I think, the best. Um that one is so strong in terms of wrapping it up. The way they kind of deliver the Cisco farewell is a little clunky, but in terms of the overall, you know, ties in thematically to what the series is, it all works. Um, as for the most clunky, I think that one's pretty obvious with Enterprise. Yeah, I, I, I can't, I can't fault you for that pick. It's just, I guess, then Voyager kind of falls in the middle. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, we watched it not too long ago, and I think we were like, yeah. It's disappointing, but it's not like a travesty the way that, say, Enterprise was. <laughs> Enterprise was also a travesty. <laughs> gotcha. Get your meaning. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, Cam. Well, look, uh, up next, we have a special guest, uh, Patrick Johnston. He's going to uh, help us kind of go through the movies. I-, I know there's like lots of moments that we did not like dive into. We, we did that before, but he's going to provide his insights. And uh, yeah, we'll continue this conversation in just a few microseconds. And we are back with one Patrick Johnston. Uh, he's been a guest many a time before. Uh, Patrick, thanks for joining us here on Subspace Transmissions. So delighted to be here, and like I said, I was joking off air. Not, I don't think I have COVID this time. I appreciate that. You know, uh, no risk of transmission. Just fingers <laughs> crossed with regards to Omicron. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so, so your appearance came about uh, just uh, this past weekend. Uh, you were texting me about this uh, purchase you made. Do you, do you want to kind of uh, dive into this purchase and maybe what well, inspired? It's very, very sad, and very much. I'm 40 years old. But for, I would say, almost since the beginning of the pandemic, I would occasionally do the old search in, uh, in uh, my uh, Apple TV and say Star Trek 3. And it would consistently come up with the result of you would have to either rent this for $4.99, which isn't terrible, or purchase it for $17.99. And I'm like, that's ridiculous. Because it has none of those. I mean, I think five and six have been sitting occasionally on Netflix, but none of the other ones have been showing up anywhere on any streaming service, at least none that I get. And, um, yeah, so there I was the other day is kind of a half joke. And I saw that it was on actually for a really good price. I think it was like seven ninety nine. I was like, oh, come on. And so then I went and looked for a couple others. I'm like, oh, come on. And then I realized they had the original series six pack available for like 20 bucks. Ooh. So there we go. I now, I now own all of them in all their glory. Um, I will probably watch 
the motion picture again at some point. I definitely won't watch the Final Frontier. Um, but I was delighted because Star Trek VI is super fun, and it was just that was kind of like a nice little bonus. Um, I've always enjoyed that movie, and in many ways, kind of the first movie of really my Star Trek, Star Trek watching life. Um, although I did when I was a kid start with with the first one, but Star Trek VI just kind of fits because it literally came out, you know, in that in that window where I was actually watching the Next Generation, you know, for the first time live every Saturday. Well, can you talk a little bit about just the first time you watched Star Trek VI? You know, how old you were and what your initial responses were or even scenes or moments that really grabbed you? I, I think, I mean, I think honestly, like I said, I was I was really got grabbed by Star Trek. I had I had definitely seen Star Trek when I was, you know, younger, like in grade two, grade three. It was the kind of thing, even by then, obviously, you know, it was in regular syndication. Um, you know, I've, I have... Um, distinct memories of one of the early ones being the Corvo might maneuver, but also realizing this is a bit different. So obviously I'd watched it to some degree before that. Um, I was aware of the next generation. I was a big fan of reading rainbow. So I had a lot of LeVar Burton in my life um, mm-hmm. and was aware that he was on another show and that occasionally you, there wasn't, there was actually literally an episode of reading rainbow where they went behind the scenes at his other job. Um, and so I'd seen it at various points then but really didn't clue in full time until season five, uh, which is the fall of 91, which is also when Star Trek six came out. Now I didn't see it in theaters um, and certainly was way behind. And, you know, obviously was, would have been what, what, uh, t- t- 10 years old, um, way behind the sort of lore and understanding all that. But, um, you know, I, and I think what I did, I, I just think, I do remember making a conscious decision. Well, these movies have numbers. I better start with the first one, and uh, and watching the movies, going up to the local video store, renting the movies, and watching them in sequence, and uh, getting to six. And I think by the time I got to six, you know, it's just that there's a there is a bit of a maturity maturing that happens even when you're sort of ten, eleven years old. Um, and understanding in a way that this was about more than just telling a Star Trek story. And, you know, I didn't necessarily get what it was, but of course, at the same time, the Soviet Union is literally collapsing. And, you know, I have, I have sort of vague memories of the attempted coup that happened against Gorbachev. And, you know, that was, you know, because we talked about it in, in, in class, like it was a, you know, current events. I don't know if anybody remembers, but current events in grade five, it was a thing we did. And, um, yeah, so having that kind of notion about it and just getting the sense that this was not a in many ways a regular kind of this 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 movie in many ways stood apart. It was a bit grander, um it was a bit more ambitious. And then of course I thought it was hilarious that there was Worf but not Worf but Worf hmm. in the movie. <laughs> well, I got to ask, I mean, uh you, you've got into really TNG at season five. Last time we had you on the show, it was Darmok, uh, right. one of your all-time yeah. favorite uh, ones. So it's uh, great to have you back here uh, for The Undiscovered Country, which my first memories of that, though, is it actually made me upset when I saw the movie poster outside of the video store because it said The Undiscovered Country. I, I was about five or six, and mm. I was like, you idiots. It, it should be The Undiscovered Planets. Come on. Like, what, what, like, I what, wasn't old enough uh, to quite understand the nuances of uh, yeah. Shakespeare at the time, but uh, yeah. I, I've yeah. come around since then. I don't think I ever understood that title when I was young. Like, I was just like, okay, I guess. Like, it didn't mean anything. I think, to my best guess, I would have seen commercials and then seen the movie where they go to Rorapente, 
and assume just because it's his barren snow planet, that's the undiscovered country. Huh. Wow. I, I, I think I would have clued in. I mean, I, we did Hamlet in high school, obviously. And, and yeah, I slowly but surely would have sort of started putting the pieces together. But, you know, it, it is amazing, at least in my life, how much Hamlet especially, but, you know, Shakespeare in general keeps popping up. You know, especially when you're, you know, you're university. What do these things mean? Why do we quote these things? Why do we go, go keep going back to them? And um, yeah, the sort of, you know, Meyer's de deployment of the undiscovered country in a way that actually was different from sort of the utility usage in, in Hamlet, but nonetheless sort of nodding towards, you know, what is sane, what is right, what do we actually, you know, what do we actually know? um about our existence and you know he's more a bit more i mean he's honest about it he's you know it's a bit more literal what do we know about the future the future is unknown you know we've been coming through this cold war uh in real life you know in in, in the star trek universe the notion that a cold war between the not even a cold war essentially an oftentimes hot war between the federation and the klingons is coming to an end and what does that mean and how do you get there uh why do, what are people afraid of um you know, I think, yeah, especially now, obviously, you know, now that you're in the world, you know, I think that's the other thing is once, you know, your life, once you move past sort of the educational getting ready and then you sort of start your life and you go through your 20s and then you realize, oh, I need a family and you have a family and your life shifts again. But then you realize, wait, we're in charge. Um, it, it almost takes on a whole new meaning. It's a really interesting one. And of course, the, the other theme of the movie is, you know, endings and, you know, the end of that crew and, and whatnot, which, you know hopefully is a long way off in the future for me and for, for you guys as well. Well, hopefully you'll uh, live like Shatner and uh, make yeah. it to 90. Oh my God. Isn't it incredible? <laughs> it's incredible. Uh, it truly things, is. Yeah. <laughs> well, so one of the things that always kind of bothered me watching Nicholas Meyer's take on Starfleet and the Federation was how militaristic uh, he portrayed it in this film. And it didn't really dawn on me until much later. Like, like he's in 1991. He he's telling a story about the collapse of the Soviet Union and yeah. what what happens next. You know, where you have this military-industrial complex down in the United States. Um, what do people do after that? Where you don't know who your enemy is anymore, or what your raison d'être is going to be moving forward. And so I think, even though it's not necessarily how Starfleet was portrayed, you know, uh, as Gene Roddenberry envisioned it, uh, Nicholas Meyer is so intent on telling like a a true like catching the zeitgeist sort of movie about kind of the uh, the the fears of the future as you mentioned uh, just a moment ago patrick and one of my favorite moments it's a smaller moment though it's just kirk and mccoy sitting on their bunks talking about the, the future and mccoy keeps going back to the immediate future you know whether it's getting their throat slit on Ruripente, and kirk's thinking deeper than that he's thinking about what his life is going to be like if he doesn't have an enemy to fight all the time anymore. He, what's his career going to be like? And this movie, it's just, it has so many layers. It, it's deep in a way that I did not pick up on the first time I watched it almost 30 years ago. Well, it's also, it's also a Kirk having to make peace with the sort of, um, you know, the caricature he had created that had killed his son. Right. I mean, that's the other thing. Um, and, and, and having to sort of go back to Meyer's previous movie, or not, no, Search for Spock isn't his previous movie, but go back to a character that Meyer had established for him. Um, 
So one of the things I did when I when I went and watched the movie this week is I actually watched it with the Nicholas Meyer uh, commentary. Okay. Which was fast, by the way, fascinating because that's obviously made almost twenty years ago. It's like two thousand. When 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 was SARS? Two thousand three. Yeah. Two thousand three. Yeah. Yeah. So he makes reference to SARS, and you're sitting here going, "I'm like, what?" <laughs> but that's you know, and and just sort of talking about things. Re- stigmatization and it's so fascinating just in our current context it was just I, if you have a chance i really recommend everyone go back and listen to it now meyer at times is a bit pompous and a bit full of himself um <laughs> but but he is very much the the thrust of the story he drove the story he talks about they talk about this, the script they first wrote and shatner hated it and and basically had all these notes and then they come back and they're like, okay. And they came back and basically gave it, gave it to him within a few hours. And he, cause he was taken off and he read it and basically got to where he was going on the plane calls and said, you guys are incredible. Um, how did you figure this out? But you know, maybe perhaps patting themselves on the, sorry, it's Meyer and the other screenwriter whose name I forget. But um, yeah, it's a lot of themes there. You're totally right, Tyler. Like there's just so many things, you know, there is the kind of hit you over the head USSR stuff. Um, but then, yeah, there's this deep, deeply personal part where you're trying to kind of close the book on Kirk in a way that I think the other thing you do kind of look at it and you're like, it's it, it, it to me does make sense that they still brought him back for generations because in a certain level, he deserves the glorious death. Um, he's this he's this kind of ridiculous uh, swashbuckling character, you know, the Horatio or Hornblower of the stars. And for him to just sort of sail off in the sunset, I'm not sure anybody ever believed that that actually would be how he finished. He finished. So, you know, I've never been one of those people who didn't like having him in Generations. Um, but at the same time, it's a good story. He saves, you know, the Federation once again. It's grand. It sort of tries to sort of set up a hopeful future. Um, I, I, I've always been a fan of it, and I still am. Well, one of the questions we were asking in the introductory segment of this episode was... How did Star Trek VI end an era in a way that was so satisfying in comparison to some of the other um, eras that didn't close quite as well, say Enterprise, or you can look at TNG as well with Nemesis. Yeah. Uh, it depends whether you want to include Picard in that potential ending. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but what was it that like Star Trek VI understood that some of these others didn't? That's you know that's a great question. I really you know you guys gave that to me as a prompt to think about, and I think I. It is so fascinating because, again, it's a guy that's an outsider, right? Like, Meyer comes to Star Trek not being a Star Trek guy. Now, he immerses himself and tries to learn everything he can and is also willing to say, sorry, Gene, you're daft. There is cynicism. There is bad stuff that goes on in this universe. Um, And that, you know, come on. Yeah, okay, they're explorers, but, like, give me a break. Why do you have guns on the ship? Um, You know, it is an amazing one that he is the guy that is able to pull this all together and does have this outsider's understanding. And to me, and this does tie a bit in with Picard, but Nemesis is such a great example of that in that they just, for some reason, lost complete connection with what TNG at least was supposed to be and the best sort of aspects of tng instead they just turned it into sort of popcorn and trying to compete with star wars and you know whatever else was going on and it was sort of you know that sort of franchise before the franchise really was a thing in movies um 
And they just, they just, it, and then again, like it's like we've discussed about with Picard, like they just, they don't, for some reason, seem to be able to land on writers who truly understand the material they're working with. And yeah, I mean, I went to see, I went to, it was so funny. Like the reviews I remember on Nemesis were absolutely atrocious. And, yeah. and, um, you know, it was one of those ones I remember sitting there, you know, cause I think it was a Christmas movie if I remember correctly. Um, you know, there was a couple old friends of mine that, you know, we were, it was our sort of annual, you know, so we're, we're three or four, we're three years out of high school. So we're still, you know, obviously pretty young, but, um, you know, we, we, we came, came together at Christmas. It was sort of a Christmas, have a drink and talk about it. And we were all were kind of these quiet Star Trek fans. And one of, one of uh, my buddy Barney looked at, looked at us and said, guys, I'm not going to, I can't go see this movie. It sounds awful. Hmm. And I went to go see it anyway. And I was so immensely disappointed. Um, it, it just, yeah, it just didn't even work. It, 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 it took the Romulans and turned them into such a sort of, not what had actually made them so interesting in the next generation. Um, and you know, you literally, I looked it up and I'm like, first of all, who the hell is Stuart Baird? He's the director. I've never heard of him. Like, you know, I guess he, 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 he edited, he edited Superman, but like, like what's going on here? Like he's literally directed three movies in his life. He directed us marshals and executive decision. How does he end up directing what's supposed to be the big send off for star Trek? Um, I'm not seeing the problem there with those credits. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> who the hell is who the hell is John Logan? You know, like you know, like he wrote the screenplay for Gladiator, great, and The Aviator, which is actually a really fun movie. Um, it's so, you know, it, it's still so like, how did he end up with this? Like, I just don't get what happened here. And um, you know, he wrote Any Given Sunday. He wrote RKO two eight one, which I really enjoy, but you know, it just, it just seems such a strange fit. Like he's just a guy that got dropped in. He's not a, he's not in no way connected to these characters. Um, maybe he was a fan. I don't know, but you know, just, he's just, it just was such a strange fit. And, and, um, you know, in the end, I think that is what works about six is that there is a conscious choice to go with Meyer to say, this is a guy who directed a really successful, really popular film, the film that saved, the movie franchise um, and just had a, I think he just, he, you know, people do sometimes just have a clear understanding of who these characters are and what they're about and how grand they are. And, um, you know, he recognized that Kirk was this grand, but flawed figure. He was willing to talk about it. Um, you know, that even Spock is not as perfect as he seems to be. There's, there's, there, there's a, there's a, you know, a misjudgment on Spock's part at the beginning, but that Spock in the end is also still the wisest of them all. And he understands how to use the various characters because, you know, pulling together a cast like that in a, in a movie is tough and giving them all something to do. And he did give them all something to do. Whereas in nemesis, you know, it's the, the, the scene that forever sticks out with me with nemesis is that stupid dune buggy scene where Picard all of a sudden is excited. <laughs> I'm like, I'm sorry, what? Like this isn't Picard. Like there's plenty of people in the world who like dune buggies and I don't judge them, but like, Jolly Picard doesn't care about dune buggies. What are you talking about? You know? And then, well, let's kill Data because we got to do something. Like, I guess. But anyway, that's my rant. You guys have had all of it. I I hate to break it to you, but season two of Star Trek Picard, it's all dune buggy all the time. So just be prepared. Not surprised. Maybe... Bit bit of a digression here. You know, I I wonder how much of season one of Star Trek Picard was trying to course correct what 
where we left off with that crew, or at least with uh, Jean-Luc Picard. Um, I think by the time we get to the end of season one, it, it felt like a, a disappointment, to, unless, at least to Cam and I. Um, what is your journey going to be like? Are, are you going to be following season two week to week when it premieres in just a few weeks? It's a good question. It's sort of real life is is challenging. Like my wife and I are, have been slowly but surely finally watching Mad Men. So that shows you how far nice, behind nice. we are. Uh, which has been great, but you know, in the end, it's it's just sort of challenge. You know, finding the time. Obviously, I cover a hockey team. You know, several nights a week, and uh, and uh, you know, you got kids, and there's a couple of you know shows my wife likes to watch, and um, you know, so it's just finding in the time. I will probably hammer it in somehow because I do have time. I have a funny work schedule that I'm off on Mondays, so you know, I usually have time during the day. Um, so I'll squeeze it in. I'll probably will. I, I, it's one of those ones that, we, you know, I, I would like to have someone to watch it with, but I'm kind of resigned to the fact there's a lot of things I just got to watch on my own now. Um, I'll, I'll probably try to keep up with it. I was pretty good with it the first time around. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I, as, as I've said before here, I was so underwhelmed by how they finished uh, season one, despite what I thought, honestly, was some really fun elements, some really neat, a really neat setup. Like the whole... The whole sort of studying the Borg, creating this this uh, you know neutral agency to study it, you know having the having the um, is he a Romulan samurai? Is that what he was? Oh, you know, uh, that, yeah. You know that was kind of El, neat. Elnor. Elnor, yeah. you know that was yeah. kind of neat, and you know just bringing in some new elements and trying to really flesh out the Star Trek universe itself in a way that wasn't going to be corny, that wasn't going to be sort of the ridiculous solutions that discovery kept making for itself. Um, I was really happy with what they set up. And then the sort of unfurling of the conclusion was so, I don't even know, just ridiculous. Robotic (laughs) space demons from another dimension, Patrick. It was just dumb. It was just dumb in the end. And it just was like, really, you guys ran out of ideas and, you know, I, was that they also changed screen? Did they did they, that the, did they change showrunners on that one too? I can't even remember. But, so the showrunner yeah. was consistent. I think Discovery's yeah. on five showrunners now, oh but essentially they, the the pitch that they gave to Patrick Stewart was completely different than what the series right. turned out to be. And there was a lot of, from what I understand, that the two part finale was almost entirely rewritten last minute and on the fly. <laughs> You can tell. So you can you can tell. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Well, I got you. I, I gotta ask. At what point are you and your wife in uh, Mad Men's run? Uh, season. I'm not drawing a blank. I think we're in season. S- I'm afraid to say because I don't want you to say anything. No, no, we're no. In season six, Dawn started fooling around on fooling around again. I'm, um, I'm shocked that that man would ever be unfaithful. I know. Yeah. Um, so. <laughs> no, it's yeah, it's it's you know, there's a it's 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 one of the I mean, let's, we're talking about you know, this is the amazing thing, by the way. I finally, I, I actually made a mistake. I hadn't looked up John Logan. John Logan's written a lot of good stuff. Um, he was very early like in the bats. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I saw bats. <laughs> well, Coriolanus, 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 which is a very was a very difficult script, and I, you know, I like that a, one actually. Yeah, that's what I mean. He did Skyfall. I really like Skyfall. Um, you know. He's done some int- inter- interesting things, but in the end, like, you know, Gladiators, Glad- Gladiator was always just going to be a Ridley Scott project, but he's the guy whose name is on it. Um, you know, did he helped out on, on any, every given, any given Sunday, but just like I said, just gets dropped in, gets dropped into Nemesis 
building off ideas of Berman and Spiner, but like, I just don't know what's going on there. And, and it's just so frustrating. And it is one of those ones I've, I've made this plea before. I just wish somebody would just back up a truck and just let Ron Moore do everything. You know, maybe he doesn't want to, hmm. but you know, how you don't end your series, your Star Trek next generation movie series by finding Ron Moore. It still baffles me to this day. I mean, I think he was probably building, was he building probably starting Battlestar Galactica at that point. Right. Because it's around then it's, it's no long after that it starts, but, it, yeah. yeah, it started in 2004, so yeah. he would have been working on the script around 2002, yeah. Yeah, so he's, you know, they're in pre-production, very early pre-production, but like, you know, come on, like, there's the guy who wrote the best stories in the show, and you can't find a way to get him to make a movie. I mean, I, this is what I think, too, is fascinating about how our entertainment universe has shifted, you know, um, like... You look at how all those things are handled. I mean, we're kind of doing it now, obviously, with all the different Star Trek series that are coming out um, and the sort of thirst for content. But you look at how they handled that and they closed it off. Um, I just find myself wondering, would they have done it differently? Just because I think I think the sort of baseline understanding of how to tell these stories are so much higher now than they were then, even, even 20 years ago. I mean, certainly higher than they were 30 years ago. Um, that, you know, the sort of, minimum requirements to put together a successful movie or a successful TV show. Um, the expectations of the viewer, the, the, the challenge of grabbing an audience, um, you know, that, that, that there's a requirement there that, um, you know, you just don't get, uh, I just don't think was there 20 years ago. And, uh, you know, like, like, you know, Battlestar Galactic helped change that whole universe. And, um, yeah, so it just like I said, it just it just it's so strange to look at Nemesis and see how you know mishandled the sort of creative side of it was, and especially in comparison with how they were pitch perfect by getting Nicholas Meyer to come back and do Star Trek Six. Well, he might be back, like just with regards to the uh, coming back into the fold for that proposed con trilogy on CBS All Access. That, that right. those scripts are still out mm. there, you know, yeah. Paramount Plus. Now now that their companies are back together again now we'll see what happens well you know you look at star trek 6 which feels like such a unique movie patrick do you think that we could ever get a closure like this ever again or does it feel very specific to the era in which it's being made that's a great you know again that's a great question right like i think you guys could probably answer that better than me because you, you have such a sort of handle on how hollywood works but um you know i i, I yeah it's a good question i mean you <laughs> just for the sake of argument, you know, because this is what 1991 is 25 years after the after the beginning of um, of the original series. Well, what's 20, 25 years ago now, give or take, is Deep Space Nine. You know, could you have dialed back 10 years ago and started a Deep Space Nine series of movies? I no, I mean that just would never work, yeah. right? Um, it's I think it really goes with the fact that you're coming out of what the three network universe right there are only so many shows on tv there's only so much ip that's already out there so which is partly why the star trek movies franchise was so unusual because they were still making movies that were just original ip that were they weren't adapting as much um you know maybe they were doing books i guess but they just weren't there was nothing there was still a little continuity from tv to movies um yeah it, it's it's hard to imagine i mean there are obviously you know the, the way that um 
you know, the HBO Max set up in the US and that, was it Warner Brothers? Warner Brothers? Yeah. Um, yeah, right. So that, you know, that kind of deal that that's that even that kind of thinking, which may not last, last or be sustained, you know, the, the fact that we're, we're changing how we think about how we produce things and what is a movie, you know, and what is a TV show. Um, it is, it is, I, I, it is hard to imagine it ever being quite like this again. Um, I just, I think just the other point to understand about six is five was so bad and so badly received. And I think even Shatner himself admits it was a disaster. Um, you know, that six was, six was a real roll of the dice by the studio you know, hoping that the fans would simply come back and forgive them a movie that no one really wants to talk about. Um, and they did, and it was, they hit a home run and it was a, it was a, it was a big success because, of, you know, because they took a gamble and you just don't see gambles like that anymore either. Well, th- there was an attempt to reboot it. Like Star Trek six was a, initially going to be a, a Starfleet Academy, you know, uh, right. film. It was all, right. <laughs> I think John Cusack was going to be Spock, for example. Right. Cam, do you remember yeah. who was going to be Kirk? I am. Re- was it Ethan Hawke? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would I would have loved to see the that pair <laughs> like at Academy. That would have been, um, you know, kind of a, a before sunset that I never knew I wanted. I'd watch it now. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, that'd be something else, eh? Um. So Patrick, just as we wind up with you, I'm putting you on the spot, so I'll, I'll give you my answer first, though. But <laughs> I'm thinking about kind of like iconic moments or, or scenes from this film, and for me, it's the the dinner sequence in which, you know, Kirk yeah. and company have the Klingons over. That is the scene that sticks with me the most out of everything. Just, it's so tense. It is really digging deep into kind of the, the skepticism that both sides have for each other. And also just like um, hate. Like there's just unbridled yeah. hate in, in that moment. And that sticks with me. But I, is there anything that jumps out? Maybe like kind of favorite scene could be the same one uh, from Star Trek Six. The dinner scene is pretty classic. It's pretty great. I've always been a big fan of 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 the court scene. Um, I, I I I mean, it's Plummer's best sequence. I mean, the, Plummer has two great sequences. I think it's the court scene and then the battle at the end. Yeah. Um, but but the court scene because it's supposed to be referencing all these things. It's got the reference from the from the uh, you know the don't you know answer me now. Don't listen for the translation. Um, yeah, yeah. Which is which is you know a, a, sec- a moment from the Security Council during the Cuban Missile Crisis, I think. Um, I, or was was it that, or was it uh, when that U two spy plane uh, crashed over uh, right. the Soviet Union? It right. Made a, I I could be getting my history mixed. Which is all very tied together, but yes, I mean, maybe that as well. But anyway, you know that scene is so fantastic. Um, I think it may have been it may be some of the best best sort of emotional stuff we ever got from DeForest Kelly, um, who was so in tune with McCoy for so long and you understood who McCoy was and, you know, in the end typecast himself and never was able to do anything else really. Um, I've always been a huge fan of that. And, um, and, um, yeah, I mean the, the the battle scene's fun. I enjoy that in the end. And I actually the other one I really like. I actually really like that that the, the opening sequence on the on the um, on the Excelsior Bridge with Sulu trying to figure what the hell's going on, and just the way it's shot and the 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 sort of little touches. It was funny, you know, like there is there is a funny continuity moment where you can see where Sulu puts his his coffee cup down, and then 
and then it starts rattling and then it moves to a, a wide shot and the coffee cup's not where it was. Um, and then it hits the floor, which is, you know, ridiculous and anachronistic. And it, or you imagine what to be And Meyer is of course proud of these things. He's like, give me a break. You know, people eat food, <laughs> like they use knives and forks. You're like, fair enough. But I just, the, the touches on that and just the sort of what the hell happened, the, the moment where Sue, the expert helmsman gets to give the advice to the junior helmsman here's what here's how we get out of this problem they get out of the problem what the hell just happened the the intercept with the with the um you know the message from praxis interrupted by you know a guy that has you know a minor role but you know is sort of a generic you know minor official um just that sequence it gets you right into the movie you're right into it um you know, interestingly enough, none of them are, I mean, there's the Kirk scene, like I said, um, but interestingly, none of them have, none of them have the whole cast in them. They're all bits and pieces. Um, but yeah, I mean, Plummer was such a great addition to the story and, you know, bought in a hundred percent in a way that is always going to be a challenge when you bring in a, especially as an actor as sort of big and famous as he was into something that really was a niche movie. So, Cam, uh, why don't you hang on to your favorite moments? We are going to bring on Scott Hardy in just a second here, and uh, you can uh, talk about your favorite moment along with Scott. Uh, but in the meantime, Patrick, I just I can't thank you enough for making time to chat with us about Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Always happy to be here, guys. And, you know, like I said, hopefully uh, I don't get sick this time. <laughs> <laughs> the only transmissions we believe in are subspace. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Okay, that is uh, Patrick Johnston, everybody. Uh, uh, hopefully COVID-free. And now, beaming in, we have a very special guest, Scott Hardy, my co-host on the Spy Hards podcast. Scott, how are you doing? I am doing just fine, and frankly, I'm as constant as the North Star when it comes to appearances on this podcast. And by North Star, you're referring to the Enterprise episode, I assume. Yes, of course. I actually just butchered that line, I just realized, because it was a Northern Star. So I'm off to a good start, guys. <laughs> no, no, it's Part fine. Of the course were... when it comes to you. Yeah. It's yeah, Enterprise, you know. I think this was the better reference. Okay. Well, you're letting me off easy on that one. But uh, I'm glad to be here, guys. Thanks for having me back. Well, speaking of, uh, speaking of Space Cowboys, we are ending an era here with uh, Kirk and Company. And Scott, I know this is one of your all-time favorite Star Trek films, one of mine as well. I think we kind of discovered it at the same ages. But uh, tell me about your experience and what drew you into the Undiscovered Country. Well, uh, for me, it was the first one I ever saw at the cinema the theater, the pictures, the films. Um, I saw it with my father. I, I think I was the tender age of four, but I distinctly remember uh, the Praxis moon exploding and the Excelsior being taken by the shockwave sitting in the cinema uh, with a massive smile on my face. And I remember in the foyer and the massive like cutout board of the, the, the poster, I think I had a photo taken in front of that, but that's long gone. And yeah, that's the first one I saw and I've seen every other film since. So you were four years old. Was this the first ever Star Trek period you'd seen, or had you been exposed to some before this? I had been exposed to some. I had been watching TNG on VHS, because uh, we in the UK got it slightly later than the US. It took about six months to get here. Uh, but the VHSs would come out quicker, 
So uh, my father would often buy the VHSs and we would watch them uh, every two, once every two weeks. Did you have two episodes on the VHSs? So I'd sort of catch up. You were more sophisticated than me. What was one of those? Uh, <laughs> what was one of those early episodes that you might recall watching? Like, has there been anything kind of imprinted in your mind from back in the day? Shades of Grey. <laughs> Can't blame you. I am curious, though, if we're talking about uh, The Undiscovered Country, you've told me before, you know, this is one of your all-timers here. It's kind of, as I said, imprinted in your memory from a young age. You watch it now, you know, you're in your 30s. Um, What is it about you that kind of still sucks you in every time you give it a a gander? There's a handful, uh, probably I mean a handful because it's probably less than five, Star Trek films that are good enough to sort of transcend being just good Star Trek films. And I would put that up against with perhaps Wrath of Khan, maybe First Contact and Star Trek 2009. And this is one of the four. And I can always go back to it. And it just has that sort of boyish wonder about it. that I, It's just a fun romp. Uh, yeah, that, that, that that's what always draws me back. Well, one of the things I like about the television franchise is how much it genre hops you know episode to episode week to week you never quite know what you're going to expect and we really actually do see this with the tos movies in a way we didn't necessarily see ensue with tng or the kelvinverse you know like we had a comedy in uh, the fourth movie we had uh, a sci-fi action pew 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 kind of movie with the fifth um your results uh, might vary there <laughs> but uh, with regards to this one this is a uh, this is a taut political thriller. Like this is kind of a, a a bit of an outlier when it comes to uh, sci-fi and especially when it comes to Star Trek and, and really kind of um, digging into kind of the, the political backdrop that was going on at the time in the early nineteen nineties too. Yeah, and it, and it's interesting because I I revisited it for this appearance today, and you know in the last year and a half, Cam and I have embarked on a mission ourselves to to sort of decode all the spy films ever made. And it's really upped my critical eye when it comes to films. And sitting down and watching this again just gave me a whole new appreciation for what Nicholas Meyer had crafted. It, it, it's it's such a, it's basically a Cold War spy story. For those that don't know, you are the co-host, along with Cam, of Spy Hards. It's uh, not as if you two are uh, doing Zoom chats, uh, just decoding uh, <laughs> spy genre just for yourselves. So, um, But uh, did, did, could this ever be a, a spy thriller, uh, one worthy of making it onto the Spy Hards podcast, uh, Scott? Well, I, I have pitched it to Cam, and uh, I think he's mulling it currently. What do you yeah. think, Cam? I think okay. it has. Uh, I think it could probably clear the bar to get talked about on the show. Now, when you watched it the other day, Scott, was there any other spy films we've tackled that maybe the tone this one reminds you of, or something maybe like some connections that jump out? Yeah, there are a couple. Thank you for for asking that, Cam. The one we covered recently, uh, a couple of months ago, um, the Day of the Jackal. Is it Frederick Forsyth based on the book by him, or was it he directed yeah. it? one of the two um and basically it's it's about an assassin who's hired to assassinate uh, charles de gaulle the president of france and it's basically his mission a procedural watching him slowly get to the point where he takes the shot and he's he's stopped at the last minute and that whole sequence right at the end where kirk saves the president of the federation and scotty shoots the guy out the window there's shots that are basically straight out of the day of the jackal and it blew my mind yeah, that's a good call, actually, a really good call. And there's something really interesting about this movie and revisiting it in that 
you know, Tyler touched on it earlier, where you get to shift the tones around a lot. And this is a, maybe in some ways a more serious Star Trek. Do you think that's appropriate in terms of ending the TOS era, an era that was often high on adventure and ending on maybe more of a serious note? I think it needed to show reverence for the characters. And I, I think it's successful in that sense. I think if it went out in, in sort of a Star Trek IV style, a lot of people would leave. Maybe they enjoyed it, but they would feel maybe empty in, in terms of the arc of the characters. Whereas there's still moments of comedy in this film. You think of Chekhov and the whole uh, yeah, the Russian story of Cinderella and the shoe fits. But yeah, I, I think it needed to treat it with reverence and to pay respect to the characters that we've spent at this point 30 years or 25 years. It was a 25th anniversary, so 25 years watching. You actually have me thinking about something, uh, Scott, with regards to like what would have been the worst movie to end the era with regards to the original series. I, I'm thinking about like you've got something like uh, the Voyage Home, but at least you have kind of that shot of the Enterprise A, you know, kind of a hope for a new beginning there. But uh, what would not necessarily have worked for them when it comes to ending an era for the original series crew? Hmm. Maybe a sequel to the alternative factor? <laughs> <laughs> can't blame me for that uh out of the films you know like uh do you think uh it would have resonated just in kind of a similar way if it was like wrath of khan was the end of the era what what if it bombed at the box office you know would have been kind of a sad note but also one with hope just with that last shot of the uh the photon torpedo coffin i think that would have been an okay thing to end on because at least you have growth Kirk grows throughout the film and, and comes to a, a, an ending. The character sort of comes to a realization and, and grows. And you get that in, in six as well, but maybe something like five where no one grows. And if, <laughs> if anything, everyone diminishes because our, you know, our brain power shrinks from watching that film. What was the last moment of uh, of five? Like, I'm, I'm trying to think of it in my head. Like, I can think of the last moments of all the other films, uh, you know, such as uh, the human adventure is going to begin Kim, do you have any recollection of how exactly was it just them uh, drinking inside of the uh, the ten four redress uh, lounge w with like the Klingons that uh, were causing trouble at the beginning of the movie? Is that the very last moment? I think it was them together with the Klingons in sort of a um, ceasefire kind of moment of peace between the two sides. No, I hold think on. That's... Is this is this five you're talking about? Yeah, it ends in row 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 your boat. Oh, of course. Of course. Back on Yosemite. It does. Yeah. yeah. And then it pitches up to the top of the... Yeah. Could you imagine if, if that was how we ended uh, the era of uh, the original series? Merrily, 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 merrily. Wait, Not wouldn't that have been the greatest ending? Like, it would have been legendary that those characters went out singing Row, Row, Row Your Boat. <laughs> They should have had a callback for Star Trek Nemesis. <laughs> what would have been the uh, the campfire song uh, that they that uh, Picard and um, B four would have been singing together? Frere Jaca, Blue Skies. Oh, Blue Skies. Yeah, yeah. Oh, don't don't remind me about Blue Skies once again. <laughs> Issa Briones will remind us all of Blue Skies. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Are you surprised there are no there aren't more convention? goers that just walk around singing row 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 your boat uh during the week that uh, we spend there every year folks i mean i tried it once and they threw me out i don't know why i'm surprised we haven't gotten a um you know proper orchestral version at the um saturday night concert <laughs> <laughs> we'll get everybody to sing along <laughs> i mean it would totally work that would 
completely win over the audience. You know it would. If you ended it with the Star Trek V score, the orchestra came in like it does at the end of the film, you might just win everyone over. It's actually like we we can um, make fun of the movie, but it, it's actually a pretty good theme. Like I, I'm not gonna uh, deride the uh, the music from that one myself. I do mm-hmm. enjoy it. I like it better than Star Trek Four. I you, you, that that hospital chase <laughs> stuff and the the kind of like the the Christmassy festive sort of music, like, kind of like '80s comedy music. I it, it really still makes my skin crawl as you, I think about it right now. You really hate that one, don't you? You always mention that. It always takes me out of it. it. It suddenly feels like it's no longer a Star Trek movie, but it is like it, we're, we're no longer following um, space fars from the future. We're watching a 1980s comedy. Like that's what it does for me. And the 1980s like comedies were go go watch one right now. Um, they're not good. They really aren't. <laughs> well, you know, we're talking about scores and. In the rest of the episode, we didn't talk about Cliff Eidelman's score on Star Trek VI. You know, where do you two come down on that? Maybe Scott to start. I think it pushes the boat out in, in certain departments. I think it's um, it's very broody. Yeah. Um, you think it's something like the opening as you get into... It's got the very long opening credits as you have all the names. And it's it, it's not the big triumphant Star Trek theme. You get that at the end. But it's just a sort of... It, it, it builds up to the point of praxis, praxis exploding... And yeah, it doesn't really hit you over the head of it. And you think the the other bit that jumps out to me is that sort of vista shot when they're on Rura Pente, and the camera pans out, and you just see the uh, the sort of precipice that they're standing next to. That's a really great uh, cue as well. I literally jumped on Apple Music after I finished watching this uh, uh, film a few days ago, and I added the uh, the score. Uh, to my list of albums here like I, I think it's a fantastic one uh, I, as you said Scott it's very moody atmospheric in a way that maybe we haven't uh, heard before in Star Trek and you know just doing my uh, my memory alpha gander um, they, they wanted to push him in that direction they wanted this to feel kind of like a, a, a darker sort of Star Trek theme than we'd ever heard before and I think he went there with kind of those dark notes and I, it really worked for me and I, I kind of wish that they Throughout the the run of the franchise, maybe kind of uh, uh, did more allusions to this sort of uh, theme that we've gotten kind of, uh, well, we got the uh, Enterprise theme in Space Stock uh, from Discovery a few weeks ago. We also got the Voyager theme on both Picard as well as Star Trek Prodigy. Why not pull back from the, uh, uh, pull uh, that same deal with uh, the Star Trek Undiscovered Country theme coming up uh, on one of these series? That would be fun. I like that it's a little experimental, and it's something I would like to see them play with a little more with Star Trek films. Uh, you can definitely sense some shades of the Danny Elfman Batman score, which makes a lot of sense, which you know obviously came out two years before this movie. But it doesn't feel like a ripoff. It's just like you can kind of sense that sort of, like that is sort of the trend at that point in time. Which, uh, if you had to fan cast uh, the original crew into the uh, 1989 Batman movie, who would be playing uh, who uh, with regards to that? Would it just be an obvious, like, Shatner is Batman? I think he has to be, right? Okay, okay. And then is Iman, is Iman um, Kate, uh, or, uh, Kim Basinger? Um, or is Spock Kim Basinger? <laughs> okay. Like, Kim Basinger is like his closest confidant in the film in so many ways, and that's kind of Spock with Kirk. Or you could also say Bones. Maybe Bones is the Kim Basinger, the Vicky Vale of the story. 
So Christopher Plummer as Joker would have been fantastic as well. Yeah, I, he fits. I was just arguing between him or, or David Warner, who I want to see more sort of dancing around, you know, spray painting things. Uh, I got to go <laughs> yeah. with Plummer. I got to go with Plummer. <laughs> okay, but then uh, who would have been playing Prince? Oh. Would it have been Nichelle Nichols? Just because uh, she's the singer of the crew? Yeah, I think that would be fun if you put her in that bat dance kind of makeup outfit and had her doing the uh, performance of the Star Trek theme like she so often does at the uh, conventions. Yeah. Like, sign me up. See, you've gone. You've both gone for like a, a man with charisma for the choice. I want to go for Walter Koenig as Prince. <laughs> okay, well. We haven't really decided, uh, but I think we have no choice, but it's James Doohan is playing Harvey Dent, right? Um, Yeah, probably. Yeah. I mean, who's Commissioner Gordon, though? Hmm. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's really obvious. It's uh, it's the Federation president. Kurtwood Smith. <laughs> Kurtwood Smith, yeah. That works. It all works. Dumbass. <laughs> oh, flawless recasting. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, Scott... In the previous segment, Tyler talked about his favorite scene in the movie, and I'll talk about mine, but first I want to hear, is there one that jumps out to you as, like, this is the iconic scene of Star Trek VI, the one that I just keep revisiting, maybe be looking up on YouTube when I have a free moment? Let them die. Oof. Well, th that's actually a really great uh, moment as well, and I was watching the special features. Um, this is a few years ago during the initial uh, review that we did, and Chatner was talking about how he was really, really pissed off mm -hmm. with how Nicholas Meyer cut that scene, and that's he was supposed to, after he said, let them die, Shatner said, I'll only do this if you let me immediately react with regret. And then instead you have... Uh, Meyer cut to Spock's reaction and you cut back and we don't see Kirk's reaction to his regret over that statement. So, but uh, th that is kind of, Shatner, I, uh, he often is made fun of for his acting style. I, I, he is a good actor though. And he puts a lot of thought into what he's doing. And I, I just like, this is kind of a great example, Scott, that you pulled uh, from this film as one of his kind of, you know, signature moments. And honestly, like him saying fire, Mm. is one of those just like that final Kirk moment we've all been waiting for. And I think he goes out with a bang here, literally, you know. I, I have also used the uh, the line that Captain Sulu uses. When I'm telling someone to speed up and they'll moan, I'll be like, well, fly her apart then. <laughs> no one ever gets it, but I like using the line. I am a big fan of the second start of the right and straight on till morning. Mm -hmm. You know, Shatner is not a, um, <laughs> a like, subtle actor. He's not, like, Scott Bakula, he kind of will give a performance and you don't necessarily see the emotions as they're happening. Whereas, like, Shatner, he's kind of letting you in. And I always think of that moment where he's saying second start of the right and he kind of pauses and smiles to himself. And he's kind of, like, letting you into the mind of Kirk. And I think some people think of this as like Kirk sees himself as Peter Pan forever among the stars as a, you know, a youth essentially. But I think it's more about this whole movie has been Kirk realizing he's reaching the end of the journey and, you know, he's about to be decommissioned The you know, the bringing the ship back in. And it's that moment of like, I recognize I'm old, but my dreams are always going to be young and out there. And he just kind of, he's an actor who lets you see the work. And a lot of actors don't. They kind of hide it. They want it to be sort of subtle and more human and more grounded. Whereas, like, Shatner wants to kind of invite you in. So you're actually watching him go through the emotional process of this scene. And it always works for me. I always get chills from it. 
he is a stage actor by trade, and I think that really shows uh, in this instance in particular. And I think Star Trek has benefited a lot from uh, tapping stage actors. And it also makes me think of uh, Jerry Ryan. Uh, she had a great story in what she she originated on the stage, but like really got her first break doing uh, Who's the Boss as like kind of a guest stint on that sitcom starring Tony Danza and Judith Light. Um, Cam is going to be launching a new podcast uh, quite soon, all about that as well. Mm-hmm. Yep, definitely. And, uh, yep, yep. And then uh, Jerry Ryan was recalling how she kept trying to throw her voice while she was on the set as if she was like in a theater again because you got the studio audience. And finally, the director had to come over to her and say, yeah, we've got microphones. <laughs> like, don't worry about it. And so it's just kind of interesting, like how you'll get actors from like kind of different backgrounds, whether it's on the stage or they went directly to uh, TV or film and, and then how they interact within kind of that uh, that Star Trek framework. And right now we've got Sonequa Martin-Green who, you know, she like whispers about like half her lines and, and mm-hmm. that's not necessarily something you could get away with if uh, your background is on the stage as Shatner's is. I did, um, I did have a question for both of you, if you don't mind. I don't mind. Go for yeah. it. Well, I know you guys were talking about um, finales and how, how this works as a, a final piece to the, the, the TOS crew. Now, I, th- I agree with that sentiment, and I think this works wonderfully for, for Captain Kirk and, and Captain Spock. I mean, Spock's learned to move past logic, that line where logic is the, is the beginning of wisdom. It, that's, that's Spock growing from season one TOS. Kirk has learned that he has grown old and he can give it up and hang up his boots. But I think DeForest Kelly's Dr. Leonard McCoy gets kind of shortchanged in this. He is part of the triumvirate, but he doesn't really have an arc through the films, apart from not wanting to be there in the first one. Um, and I think that's a bit of a shame in this film. I, I, I agree, but like I, I mentioned it earlier in the show, in like this is primarily kind of a Kirk story, mm-hmm. and they don't back away from that. You, you even look at like, you know, like Uhura has virtually nothing to do. I wonder what they could have done with regards to McCoy, because it even seems as if McCoy had um, kind of those arcs going on in, say, the fourth one especially. You know, you even have him in the first one in which he's kind of a bearded disco ball man. And uh, I, I just wonder, like, what they could have done. You don't have to devote another 12 minutes to him in, in screen time, but there could have been a couple more, you know, like, uh, lines given to him about his own part, because he wasn't nearly as introspective about this journey as Kirk was when they're on Ruripente. And, you know, McCoy is very much focused on the near future where Kirk was thinking about kind of the long distance future as well. I wonder if part of it is that like McCoy isn't as enamored with the idea of being out exploring the stars the way that like a Kirk is or a Spock is. So for him, I can kind of buy that like he's ready to retire. You know, he'd be out there with his friends if, you know, they were still going, but He's okay being decommissioned and settling into a quieter life. Um, I do want to just give him props, though, for maybe, like, the funniest McCoy moment in possibly the entire film series, which is when they're on, you know, the uh, courtroom, and, like, he makes a joke about his arthritis, and there's, like, a single laugh coming from the courtroom. (laughs) And then McCoy looks so pleased with himself for that one laugh. (laughs) That's pretty much the three of us whenever we try to land zingers, though, as well. But um, I, I, I do wonder, though, it, it, it's kind of like you said that he's ready to settle down for kind of that quiet life. Um, 
he 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 goes on to become like an admiral, like heading up uh, Starfleet Medical, as we know from uh, Encounter at Farpoints. This man is a man who's all about living uh, as long as he can. So it's kind of, I, I wonder if that's our coda. We really should think of Encounter at Farpoint as the coda for McCoy more than anything else. Was that a good coda, though? Does he seem like a character that would want to go on to become an admiral? No, not at all. <laughs> I mean, this pitch just hit me, and you can say it's it's good or bad, but and you'll probably say it's bad, Tyler. I'm sure. Why not just mention that he's married, or he has a kid on the way, and he wants to get home? A kid on the way, like yeah, yeah, well, yeah. His wife could be pregnant. He's got a couple of months left before he gets decommissioned and retires, and then this you've got this kind of like I want to get this mission done and survive, and then it adds to the tension when they're at Ruripente because he's lost that life. I could see like some could, sort of. I could buy that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's an exit point for the character that doesn't require a long arc. You can kind of set it up in a sentence or two, and it gives us a good ending to the character, as opposed to here where it's just like, well, I mean, they kind of just lump him in with you know all the other characters, Scotty, Uhura, Chekhov, where they're all just kind of like, well, we're being decommissioned. That's that. Um, at least Sulu has the um, you know the exit obviously onto the Excelsior, where you get a little more of a setup for something potentially in the future perhaps an episode of voyager that will become tyler's favorite episode of all time well the only problem with that is we're not really setting him up for the future we're setting up to repeat the same moment that we get right here so it's like also uh, true yeah um, you know it just as, as we kind of wind up uh, i'm thinking about spock's journey as you alluded to scott and what sticks in my head the most is cam you and i we just rewatched uh, galileo 7 and you think about his command skills back then versus him taking command of the Enterprise as they seek out Kirk and McCoy here. And it, it's like, now that is an arc. You know, like that is somebody who has the full confidence of the crew and even like the audience watching him. And I, I think it's just kind of fantastic to see that. Um, we do get like kind of a good end of an era with regards to the 2009 movie, but then they kind of bring him back for no particular reason in Star Trek Into Darkness in a moment that makes us kind of roll our eyes as we see him on the view screen. And then it's kind of a, a, a more of a sad end when it comes to Beyond, because we know that Leonard Nimoy has passed away by then, and you know it, it's Kelvin versus Spock who has to find out that his future self from the Prime Universe has now passed on as well. Yeah, and it, I wish he hadn't come back for Into Darkness. I think it would have been the perfect ending with 2009. Like, that would have been perfect, but... Like Shatner, uh, you know, this would have been a pretty amazing ending for Kirk if we ended up with six and he came back for one more. Nimoy made the same mistake. So are we just destined to kind of have these so-so ends to an era? You know, at least with the characters. I, I think this movie goes out on top, but uh, some of the characters keep coming back or we have, you know, like I, I think of it like... um remember scotty comes back to next gen and um everybody just wants him to f off and it's kind of <laughs> like that's kind of sad you know and um i guess uh you know th there's uh, other examples I, I guess sulu we know that he's a family man mm -hmm. so that's kind of a nice thing that we discover in generations as well um unfortunately in star trek beyond um it doesn't seem to be much of a loving relationship he has with his uh, husband in which they, they really don't want to um, touch each other for fear that censors in other countries will uh, 
cut that scene entirely, which is kind of a cowardly move on the part of Paramount at the time. But um, there, there are moments that when you kind of dig into the mythology of all these characters, but some of it, it can be thought of as a little bittersweet, I suppose. I think you're both uh, missing out the key point that is Star Trek of Gods and Men, which gives Uh-oh. us the outcome for Walter Koenig and the Shell Nichols. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> For, for those uh, who, who want to follow up on that, Cam, we, you have to include that link to our episode all about uh, Star Trek fan films, which, um, again, your mileage will vary on Star Trek fan films, although mine did not. Uh, they all get the thumbs down. <laughs> yeah, um, and also we have, of course, the uh, inaugural episode of Renegades, which had more checkoff action, so check that out. Actually, at least it's a better end of an era for Icheb than what we got with Star Trek Picard. <laughs> no, that's an excellent point, actually. Um, Icheb, you should have just called it at that. Um, although I guess the actor did. So in terms of the actor, he went out on top. Yeah, true. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I think on that note, our assignment is complete. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, we want to hear from you. Jump on over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash subspacepod. Tyler, what are we doing next time? We are going to do a catch-up with Star Trek Discovery. It will be episodes uh, 2, 3, and 4 since we uh, last talked at about the premiere. Um, Scott, you're, you're not following it necessarily uh, in season 4, are you? I watched the premiere and I've not uh, felt the need to go back. Okay. Uh, you know, Cam and I, we had um, some cautious optimism after the premiere. I've watched the subsequent episodes, and I, I if I want to sum it up uh, with one word, I'll, I'll just call the series frustrating. Hmm. Very frustrating. There's your teaser yeah, for next yeah. week, folks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, you can, of course, find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam, V is in very cold prison planet, Smith. You can find me at Reporton, that's R-E-P-O-R-T-O-N, N as in Nixon going to China. <laughs> Scott? And if you want to hear more about Spy Hards podcast, where Cam and I tackle spy films every week, you can find us at Spy Hards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S. S as in second star to the right. And straight on till morning. Ooh, that's good. That's good. Okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. complete.